You're listening to Conversion Nations, the podcast that helps conversion optimizers overcome challenges they face with their experimentation programs. Brought to you by Effective Experiments, the workflow and project management software helping optimizers make experimentation a core part of their business. Scale up your testing program with a centralized solution and document all your research, ideas, experiments, and results in one place. Learn more and request your free trial by visiting EffectiveExperiments.com. Hi there, and welcome to uh, the latest episode of Conversionations uh, from Effective Experiments. Uh, I'm Tim Stewart, and here today joining me as usual is Chad Sanderson. Hey and joining us as a special guest for this week's podcast is Georgi Gorgiev, uh, who has uh, well, explained a little bit more about himself when I, we introduce. Um, and we're here to, to talk about things that are related to conversion optimization, analytics, and trying to do the best for your business. So if you've watched previous episodes, that's the basic plan. Um, we're going to riff off what we're going to uh, talk about between each other and any um, suggestions you've got for us, be happy to put them in the comments when we post this or contact us through Twitter and let us know and we'll start on today. So as we've um, got a special, a special guest on this week, I thought we'd start by letting Georgi introduce himself, explain kind of who he is, where he comes from and perhaps tell us a little bit more about kind of what you've been working on recently. Yes, uh, thank you, Tim. It's very nice to, to be joining you today. Uh, I'm a fan of the show, watched previous episodes. Uh, so, um, yeah, basically, uh, yes, my name is Georgi Georgiev, um, and I don't mind George if that's too much of a mouthful. I've been running my own marketing uh, agency for just over 10 years now, but my experience goes way back into the early 2000s. Um, dealt with literally hundreds of websites. Um, I started with search engine optimization, Google AdWords, moved into web analytics, and finally statistics and uh, CRO. And on top of that, uh, we also operate some of our own properties. Um, for example, you can read a lot from me on the topics of web analytics and conversion rate optimization on the analyticstoolkit.com blog. Um, so that's, uh, that's about it. Cool. Um, yeah, and obviously that's where I've, I've read a lot of the, the blog posts and seen you guys posting on, on LinkedIn with um, the, the stuff the analytics toolkit. And it's, it's a useful resource and it's one I point people to as well. So um, glad to have you on the show today. So in terms of what we've been up to since we last met, uh, um, once again, being back into conference season, I was at Conversion Elite Search Elite in London yesterday. Um, it's uh, I did an event last year, did both all the events last year, which were separate. So they had conversion elite and search elite on different days, so different audiences. This was a bit of a twist this year, which I think Chad would approve of because um, they had both running at the same time. So a twin track conference, but with the coffee breaks, people were mingling between the two. And then at the end, they actually removed the wall because it was all about removing the silo and get the walls down um, <laughs> and got the, the end of the day panel was myself, uh, Russ McCarthy, John Allison, Jerry, um, and uh, Bart Schutz from Online Dialogue as a mix of the SEO, attribution, and, and CRO types, and obviously Bart's a behavioral psychologist. And we were kind of answering the question is kind of, you know, what can we do to bring down the walls? I mean, the, the, both CRO and uh, SEO have got an O in that, in that title. We're ultimately all trying to get the best out of it. And kind of the, the conversations during the day was how can I be best at search? How can I be best at converting? Um, and we were kind of arguing back and forth. I think 
argues probably wrong, we're all in broad agreement that there shouldn't really be a uh, a distinction. There shouldn't be a line drawn when you just ignore what everybody else is up to. But by the same token, there are specialist skills where, you know, even within SEO, you need to be able to do technical SEO or content writing or kind of crawl budget stuff, information architecture. Even within SEO, there are sub-disciplines which people could specialize in where you have to understand where it fits the bigger picture, but you don't necessarily have to be a specialist in all areas. Um, and we did give Jerry the red card for using the phrase T-shaped, but effectively that was the argument. So we answered quite a lot of questions over about an hour, hour and a quarter's worth of talk from the, the audience. Um, and there seems to be a lot of enthusiasm. People seem to, to get it. There's quite a good spread of people who were, when asked, um, doing both. So like Gorgie was saying, like coming, coming in from the SEO side, um, uh, but also having kind of a web analytics need to report. Um, so that was quite a good conference. Uh, we had a um, bunch of new speakers. We had the guys from Channel 4. Um, Divya did a good presentation on kind of how she organized the team. And then uh, Simon from Sky uh, did the same sort of thing, kind of like how to work. And his argument was the silo that needed to come down was removing CRO for us being a marketing discipline. You, know, you should sit with the agile team. It's, it's about development. It's about changing the way the site works. Um, why does it sit in just the marketing team's remit? Because conversion rate is not actually what we're trying to improve. We're trying to improve the way the site works. Yeah. The people who can fix the site are probably the best place to sit. And marketing can guide why that's needed and how much money can be earned. But ultimately, getting the job done is where the money's made. Um, yeah. So entertaining um i've got uh, ungag next week and then i've got a bit of a break i think i'm doing another conference for a couple of months thankfully um but that's been kind of busy life going back and forward so it was interesting to see the seo side because i was nipping between the both rooms trying to do the photography um an awful lot of what they're concerned about is coming is in the voice space um what you can do in terms of how we're optimizing towards voice search, how that's going to lead towards brand, how image search and AI sort of AR combinations so of the real world image identification sort of takes us back to kind of good old school ambient stuff where if your brand is recognizable in the real world, it can be picked up and tracked. Um, that's really outside kind of the text-based specialisms an awful lot of SEO. Um, so conversations around that i think in some cases were more advanced than the cro side because we aren't currently answering you know how could i improve my 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 google bot on google home or how could i improve my alexa um in terms of testing that you know what is the better way to respond um yeah that's something we're we we we've been thinking about going into those areas too like the google bots and the alexas and stuff like that but a lot of that stuff is you know we're still at that foundational level of making sure that our data is correct and, and accurate. So this, this I, I think sometimes like, you know, people, people can get super excited about that type of stuff before all the other things are in place. Like, Oh yeah, what can we do to test Alexa? It's like, Oh, well, you know, your data sucks. So maybe that, that's, maybe that's like a good starting point. <laughs> that's the same for all of it. I think, I think half, the, I think the reason the search guys are, um, interested in obviously the, the switch towards kind of a mobile centric search and kind of user specific rather than being you know, ranking at number one there is no number one position it's personal is the the stuff they've been able to control or at least provide good content for if they're fully white hat um it's now again google deciding what gets you know they don't have here's your top 10 results when you ask google home a question they give you what's currently in the featured snippet so how do you 
make sure that you've always got an answer. You're always the top answer. It's not just read from Wikipedia each time. Um, because if they if they haven't got their social graph, if they haven't got their, their open graph information clear enough, if they've got their, their rich snippets, their featured snippets nailed, then chances are they won't be the selected answer. Um, mm -hmm. And they're, for them, that's, that's already encroaching upon, as Google, less and less is of the page's organic results. As, less, as you get to mobile, it's basically nothing visible of the fault that's organic. And then when you come to voice, there's one result given, and it's Google's choice as to what that result is. Um, yeah. It's maybe only a matter of time before they start charging for that top slot, so there might be any, not be anything in there. Um, yeah, probably. So yeah. I, I actually had some um, some questions for Georgi. Uh, so I, one one thing is I'm I'm a huge fan of of uh, analytics toolkit. I use it all the time for everything, and I always recommend. I send anytime people have like statistical questions about things, like um, like you have some sort of general articles on doing uh, experimentation statistics correctly, understanding them correctly one-tailed, two-tailed testings like that. I just send people over there instead of explaining it myself, you know, because it does a much better job than I could do. Um, That's certainly part of the idea, so thanks for, I'm, I'm glad it's useful for you as well. Yeah, so, so, so I, I just wanted to hear from you. Um, well, well, first of all, I, I wanted to ask you, like, what are some of the main things that you've kind of been focusing on for the past, I don't know, six months uh, or, or a mm. year so far that mm. maybe you think people in the CRO world aren't doing or, or may need to start doing? Yeah, it's actually a big story for me since uh, I started with observational data, then moved to um, experiments because I needed causal links. And when I started doing that, even at the beginning, one of the questions that, that was really pertinent but had no good answer was how do you determine the statistical significance level? How do you determine how long to run a test for? Um, what a sample size should be? Um, whether you should uh, look into the test while it gathers data or whether you should just leave it be and you know, have this very basic approach. And these questions actually finally came to, I finally come to some answers in the past uh, six to 12 months indeed. And this came from this uh, framework that I built of um, this model for risks and rewards in A-B testing. Basically, um, making sure that you know what the potential rewards for, from each test are, both uh, during testing and after testing, knowing the potential risks, again, during testing and after testing. And um, People often forget that there are fixed costs and risk-adjusted costs. They don't uh, really, uh, at least I, I haven't seen anyone else writing about this. They don't understand that um, uh, running a test for too long can actually be hurting them. Um, similarly, other results come when they run the test for too short. So, you know, the two types of errors, type 1 and type 2, basically a false positive and a false negative. Uh, these are things that I've been working on immensely. Um, I've written about. Um, I, my general idea is that zero practitioners from the, that's from when I started in 2014, but I don't think it has changed that dramatically in the past uh, several years. They do not understand or have significant misunderstandings of statistics, yet. Um, they have a complete faith in the results that come from statistical tools mm -hmm. or from statistical methods. 
And that, that for me is a big issue because let's say you, you have some idea. You think you should change something on the side to make some action to get, to get business results. Okay. Now, if you don't think this idea has been scientifically proven, uh, if you don't think there is rigor behind it, you, you will be more willing to consider um, changing that in the future, uh, reconsidering, um, reimagining it. However, when you think it's been tested, when you think it's a fact, when you think the data is behind it, then it becomes a problem if it isn't. And that's, that's basically why I'm working so hard. And so just, for, just, to, just, yeah. to, just to re sort of restate what you just said, basically you're saying that the, the, the major problem is when you have someone who's using a method that may not be great, are you relying on a tool and the tool may not give them the most accurate result and then they see the result of some test and because the the tool or the process isn't necessarily trustworthy and they get a particular result that they think is trustworthy now they're saying okay it's done it's over we're not coming back here anymore hmm. whereas maybe if they had if they understood the statistics behind it if they understood the methodology they'd be more willing to say, well, you know, we can still come back and build more ideas on top of this one. Yeah, you actually built a little bit upon what I said, because once you have, uh, you have two issues there. One is you might be using the proper method, but, um, you know, in this case you have, okay, this method says there is some uncertainty. Statistics helps us measure the uncertainty. So now we know we have, you know, a decent amount of certainty about this result, so maybe we'll revisit in the future, but we're pretty certain it's correct. Now, the, the bigger issue that I was talking about it was actually uh, not using the correct methods or misunderstanding what the methods do and say and what the tools do and say. It doesn't matter if it's a third-party tool or if you're using uh, R or your pocket calculator. It doesn't matter. Like If you do not understand what the method is telling you, it's not good. So, right, so they're kind of yeah. they're, they're using it to um, uh, it's like faux scientific method. You know, because we've tested it, we don't need to question it again, and they don't really care exactly. whether it's accurate. It's just they can kind of give it a stamp of approval. We've tested that, and nobody's challenging them to say, "Have you really?" Or they're just going, "Well, no." Tool says yes. Keep moving. It's kind of uh, testing. They don't testing, understand testing. what the testing mean, what the results actually mean. Like yeah. you said, it's testing. They're, they're using experimentation as a justification for decisions they wanted to make anyway, and that's kind of that's that's the danger I see an awful lot of the time is they 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 kind of consciously choose to interpret results the way they want to consciously, uh, maybe subconsciously, don't question results that seem like they're counterintuitive. To so just go, right, we don't have to test that again. So it's like a tick the box, move on. Because I don't want to to, to challenge the views I've held. You know, we should be challenged. To, we're, we're looking to disprove our hypotheses, aren't we? So we should be challenging things that we're holding as as our precious little ideas. And if we come up with something that kind of disagrees with that, quite often they'll go, "Tool's wrong," and still do it anyway. Or the opposite is what Georgie's saying: is they'll they'll get something that looks like what they're expecting. They'll test to get uh, their assumption, and they go. Yeah. They don't question when their assumption is proved right, and they'll just go, "Well, that's what we were going to do anyway. Great!" And and they've kind of false, falsely validating what they wanted to do, rather right. than 
So, yeah. so, I, so I wanted to, to sort of expand upon something, Georgi, that you said a little bit earlier uh, that, you, that you started talking about, which was this risk versus uh, reward framework that a lot of people don't think about. So what, what would be an example of uh, a, a situation where maybe you have a CRO or you have a, a marketer or somebody like that, and the, the, the repercussions of not considering their the, the risk going into building a test out? Well, first of all, you cannot build a statistical design properly. So you can't, can't actually run a test, technically can't do it. Um, the thing is, uh, to even design the test, you need to have an idea of um, the certainty that you want out of the test. So a lot of people just go for the default 95% or you know, p-value of 0.05. Why? Who says that's a good threshold? Like, this has to be proven, this has to be tested. You have a specific business case, you have specific expenses related to that test. Um, no two tests are the same and that, that has to be the mentality. And it's, instead it's, uh, I have these magic numbers here, I put 95% significance, 80% power, boom, there we go. We have like maybe five or 10% in your detectable side effect size and every test is done the same way. No. It's, it's different, for example, if you're testing um, the wording of a um, CTA button, which is like uh, 10 minutes of work for the designer, 10 minutes of work for the developer, probably a couple of hours for you to just deploy and monitor and report on. And it's quite a different story if you're rebuilding the entire shopping cart experience of a major retailer, right? Mm -hmm. uh, the stakes are a lot different and um, the potential losses are a lot different, the potential gains are a lot different. Why would you use the same thresholds? Why would you run this, the two tests in the same way? It doesn't make any sense. So that's what this, uh, this framework is, uh, is trying to quantify. It's trying to, to quantify both the risks and the rewards and to find the optimal statistical parameters for the test. Now, obviously it's partially subjective. It's partially depending on your it could be dependent, dependent on your prior uh, experience. Maybe you've run 10 other tests like that. Maybe you've added, let's say, some kind of a trust batch, or maybe just logos of credit card, uh, card providers. And you know that each time it resulted in between five, and five to 10% lift, okay? Now, you won't do the 11 test with the same mentality as you did the first one or the first 10 tests, right? So. All of these taken into account can lead to significantly different uh, statistical parameters. And I often hear people, um, you know, not knowing this leads to two kinds of errors. One is, of course, um, you just um, fail to, to set the correct sample size, fail to plan the test correctly. So what happens is you run the test too quickly, you don't even give it a chance to give you a statistically significant result. And then you say, oh, that test is a negative. Uh, let's move on. Let's try something else. This doesn't work. But you've never given it a chance. Why? You know, that's, that's poor design. And when I hear numbers like uh, only 5% of A-B tests are successful, are positive, uh, only 5 to 10, some, some people even bring in lower single digits. I'm, I'm like, how? Why? What are you testing like, for? Are, are, are these real? How do you justify the cost of running 10 or 20 tests to, to get one winner? I don't get it. 
I think I think yeah. I mean, that's a key point. Is it quite often? I think it's based on the VWO status. They said like three three out of ten tests are successful to reach significance, uh, and it's kind of like okay, well, based on what to what goal? Um, have you read the yeah. article or seen, seen the presentation that Matt Gershoff did about kind of um, same around the same time as you were kind of quantifying kind of where your what's your return on investment versus what's your risk balance and and picking your your P and uh, picking your your power and your statistical significance level um, and to a degree kind of how much prior you want to account for if you're going Bayesian um, depends on kind of how risky it's like you said your, your simple cosmetic small risk small outcome small small value you know it's got low cost to do but it's probably only going to work for that short seasonal period it may add to the body of learning you've got about how you handle messaging but that particular banner is only going to be live for three months therefore you know, he he calls it the, the kind of zero risk or the 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 um, yeah kind of no damage situation, and he's arguing for kind of in that situation, you know, effectively you can run a test for the sake of running the test if you want, but most of the time that's cost prohibitive. If it's cheap enough to run, you might as well, but you don't need to have anywhere near the same level of of power and difference. Whereas I think obviously Chad and you have both talked in the past about kind of the difference scale you'd need if the thing you're trying to change is not necessarily a binary um you know did they click did they buy but is related to trying to shift the shape of their average order value the composition of the basket yeah. um working mm -hmm. to revenue totals and what makes up those revenue totals and how that's distributed and whether that is you know evenly distributed i mean quite a lot of these when you start reading the the manual if you do actually bother to read how we do our stats manuals for whichever tool they all start with we're working on the basis of a normal distribution and we're working for you know, you know distinct independent tests and they kind of lay out here's the limitations we are going to use a tool yeah. for and then an awful lot of people use that same set of the default of 95 80 the same analysis as it for a click on a button uh, versus a you know, a big lifetime purchase, big value purchase, as to the, the AOV difference, the RPU difference. Whereas there are, if not different sort of tools to use, there may be different statistical rigors that you would apply for each of those situations. And I think your argument and both Matt's argument has been, and that works the other way too. If it's not that important, it's not that dangerous, the extra time you spend getting to 95% or getting to whatever power you've decided for that difference, and that detectable effect that must be hit, otherwise it doesn't count and it's not successful, it's time you could be spent doing another test. The test is more valuable. And there's a finite mm -hmm. amount of traffic or finite amount of budget to spend on this sort of stuff. If you aren't moving forward, then effectively you're navel gazing you're, you're testing to make yourself look good not testing to improve the business um, right so so one of one of my questions Georgi, is i think you know we've probably got some people on the line now that are that are hearing this for the first time because this is a it is kind of a radically different way to think about testing than what most people who start in cro and, and marketing have heard typically what they get is 95 percent significance 80 percent power and that never changes ever. So, so how would somebody go about adjusting their current optimization framework into this new model where they care about risk and reward? Yeah, well, first I would suggest just understanding the different kinds of risks and rewards. And these are, um, this can be distinguished by time. So first you have the time during testing. So a lot of people don't uh, don't understand that during testing, 
um, noting limits, uh, not noting, but statistical significance and statistical power do not limit their risk. So during testing, if you're testing something that doesn't work, that breaks the experience in some uh, significant way, you're losing money, right? And a lot of people don't, uh, don't seem to focus on that because they don't understand that st statistical significance only uh, limits your risk after the test is complete. It limits the risk of running something which is inferior. Mm -hmm. And in the same way, statistical power limits their gains after the test. Because if you test with 80% power and you've invested, let's say, for some big overhaul of the whole process of an, of an e-commerce site, maybe you've invested $100,000, then with 80%, you actually have one in five chance to not detect a statistically significant effect. Which is huge, are you, which is yeah. a massive percentage for something exactly, that Exactly, exactly. So you should start thinking about this. You should start thinking, okay, upfront, what have I invested into this test? Uh, then during testing, how much can I afford to risk, uh, both in terms of um, negative results during the test, if what I'm testing is actually worse, which can happen, right? And, and also in terms of missed uh, opportunities to, um, to, to, to actually push the a winning variant faster, right? Push it to 100% of the users. And once you start thinking about this, then you can probably start modeling, um, you know, you, you, you will have a, an estimate of your risk and of your reward, and you will be able to say, okay, if we wait two more weeks, um, our risk doesn't really increase that much, but we'll be able to detect a smaller um, minimum objective effect, which still makes a lot of business sense for us because the gains will be such and such. And yeah, I mean, unfortunately it's difficult to go through that step by step because um, there are parts which, are, which function like feedback loops. For example, increasing the sample size increases the minimum objective effect, but it also increases your risk during testing and um, you know, these are things that you change one, the other moves, you need, that. that's why I, on top of, of writing articles, I build tools to help users to, to help people to, um, to calculate these things, because th these are not trivial. I mean, I've spent more than three months, like day in, day out, on, on this A-B testing ROI calculator, and uh, it's not perfect, but it's uh, at least, I think much better than just guessing because the other thing is minimal detectable effect. People don't often, don't offer, uh, offer, often underestimate how important it is because they don't understand power. Like if I ask you, Chad, uh, I'm pretty sure you know, but power um, is calculated how? Is it like well, when I say a test has 80% power, does it mean that it has 80% to detect a 5% improvement? and 10% improvement, or? It's the improvement of whatever MDE you've set. Exactly, so it's a point value. So it's 80% at the point you've set. And that's why it's so crucial, because it's a curve. So over the, all the possible true improvements, uh, power rises or drops. If it's to the left of the MDE, it drops. If it's to the right, it rises. So if it's a bigger effect, you have larger power to detect it than 80%. If it's a lower effect, you have much lower power. It actually drops quite quickly. And uh, that's why it's so key to set it right. Now, if you have 
too high an MDA, you're being unrealistic. And this can happen, I think, because a lot of people are reporting these amazing A-B test results, like 100% improvement, 200% improvement. And you're like, okay, with an MD of 20%, I should be fine. And also, it would only take me two weeks to run the test, so that's pretty good, right? Uh, yeah, but you're just changing the color of this stupid button that uh, barely anyone sees. Why do we expect 20% lift? And if the lift is 1%, how are you expecting to detect it when the power for that is like zero points or something like a couple of percentage points? It, it doesn't make sense. And the, con the converse is true. They'll, they'll change the stupid button color for the button that nobody sees or the, the banner off that only 3% of people qualify for, mm -hmm. but then report yeah. against mm -hmm. transactions, which is seven steps later, and go, well, you know, yeah. your, minimum <laughs> your minimum detectable effect for that needs to be significantly larger to still have some kind of echo further on in the, in, in the process. But uh, so I think the, the key point there is like Chad said, some people, this is kind of, we, we enjoy this. I, I, you know, I'm glad you had to ask Chad that question, not me, because I would have probably had to fire up a web browser to answer it correctly. <laughs> um, uh, but it, it is, it's kind of, this is kind of stuff we care about because we've seen tests that we thought reported odd and we've checked it and gone, ah, that's because we didn't think of this thing. We, you know, this part, this factor wasn't part, part of it. So, um, so we take those people who are using kind of, and I won't pick a particular vendor, but say VWI optimized, whatever converts, um, where they give you the option to kind of go, like what's our baseline? What's, what's, however they phrase it, what do you expect or what do you want it to go to? And what your expected traffic per variant is going to be during that time. These are the variable pieces that they're, uh, this is a good result, this is not a good result calculator is going to use. So if you kind of go, here's a ridiculously high uh, expected effect i want it only counts unless it's 20 percent, and it's not likely to get that you're probably never going to reach significance it's, it's always going to be flipping backwards and forwards because what you've asked to distinguish is beyond the granularity of the tool you're using to do so with the changes you're making and with the accuracy you're looking at and the flip side of going you know having your mde trying to trying to to be underpowered to make the test go faster quite often that's what i'll see them use it yeah. for so i want the test conclusion in two weeks why because we want to run it for two weeks because there's another test coming and so they'll play with the numbers until it equals a two-week runtime and that's exactly. them is the goal is, is can we make it a two-week runtime okay but by doing that i've changed one or more of my the balance points to to make that maybe less accurate or maybe more accurate than need to be that could have been concluded within a week you may have a policy to say we want a, you know, a more representative sample, but that's not a question any of those tools can answer. That's something which you need to have investigated on your site. You know, if I test on one weekend and it's a particularly atypical weekend, it's valid for that weekend and that sample only. Project and something, some, something actually, another, another thing I wanted to, to return to because it was, a, it was a, another good point that I think a lot of CROs, especially the ones who maybe haven't started a program yet, but are thinking about investing in a tool, haven't thought about. There's this idea, oftentimes, and uh, Georgi, you stated it. You stated it pretty, pretty perfectly. I think that how do you justify your experimentation program if only five out of 100, or however many tests, are, are actually winning? Because there is a cost associated with it. Running the tools is not is not free paying people's salary to run the tools is not free. If you're getting your test developed by developers on site, like they have to put hours into that. You know, if you're paying somebody $35 an hour or $40 an hour, whatever it is, 
and they spend, you know, five hours putting your test together, that's money. And that's, it's adding up. It's constantly adding up. And yet some of the feedback that sometimes we get from the CRO community is like, oh, it doesn't matter. You know, it doesn't matter. You know, you can lose as many as you want. It's fine because it doesn't cost anything yeah. since you paid for the program already. Fa fail and fast. It's not true. Just test, test, test. It's like, well, if, if you've got that kind of unlimited traffic and budget, great. Happy for you. Yeah. I personally don't tend to get to work with those kind of constraints. There is particularly on the dev side. Uh, you say like it's a dev cost. and If you can find a dev for $35 an hour, then... <laughs> Send them my send them my, my details, um, but uh, it's it's also down to well, what else was that dev working on? Because they're not working in isolation. We started out at the top of the hour talking about uh, you know we don't have or we're very rarely in a situation where we've got the CRO team with their own dedicated devs. More often than not, they're in the IT central circus, and I guarantee you they've got a backlog of stuff that is probably revenue impacting, either in terms of you know server speed, cost, development bug fixing, you know, known bugs that are on the list to fix that already cost money, don't need testing, but need fixing, uh, yeah. or give them competitive advantage. If you pull them off that project to do a test that is going to be one of the throwaway, I must hit 10 tests per month KPI, actually you're costing, the opportunity cost is probably far larger than whatever you could have won on that test. And I know, Chad, you've talked about kind of modeling that in terms of this is the value has to stack up against what it's got. So total, I've talked about project tracking, you know, actually time tracking those people to kind of say, look, if we're optimizing how well we plan our tests and we're optimizing our website and our user experience, optimizing how we do this surely should be part of what we do. You know, look at how well we test, how fast we planned this time versus last time, how many mistakes we made in the process this time versus last time, or how much quicker we've got. Now we've got a working process to think through. And I think, yeah, there, there is, we don't work in glorious isolation. If there's a developer cost, if there's a time on site cost, if there's a net negative impact from running that test, um, there are companies who, that's why they stop their tests early. They're, they're peaking and they go, oh, half our traffic might be as much as 20% down. We're stopping the test because we wanted to run the test so that all variants involved were positive. So running the test itself was a net benefit. And if you're doing that with a test tool, and you're counting that as success, then you're, you're testing wrong. That's not the point of testing. But you see people doing it all the time. I won't run it if there's a risk of me having a negative variant in test. Then why are you testing? Because yeah. you can't, yeah. you're going in, you can't know that. That's the point of testing. If you knew that, you wouldn't be testing, you'd just pick the winner. Um, so I think there's some naivety around that. I think there's some risk aversion. You know, it's natural, just business decision risk aversion. But like Chad was just saying, there's some blindness to this as well. If you if you aren't aware of what that dev cost is, if you aren't aware of the the risk reward balance, and like you was saying, it, it's it's at a company level. It's the level you're able to understand it. It's the level of risk you've got. It's I've worked with most of the companies I work with are far more uh, risk tolerant than I am. I'm, I'm I'm much more kind of like let's get this right. Let's make sure you've told me you need to be accurate to two decimal places on this particular revenue piece. And they've gone, it's up. We'll take it. I'm like, eee. but then I suppose they're coming from a culture where they're used to gambling on gut feel, and coin flip. So if that's, you say, that's what everyone does. That's yeah. you know, if you're not if you're not testing, that's literally. It's literally what every decision is. I'd argue when we're testing, you probably are, all you're doing is perhaps improving the weighting of that coin. It's still to a degree reliant upon some subjectivity, your your topic selection, your uh, 
the the power uh, that you pick you know your tolerance for fault on that the period you pick to run in the fact that you need to account for you know people going oh come on run multiple tests at once well yes just be aware of it but secondly you know your clients uh, your clients it's not that sealed box scientific experiment you know people coming to your site your prospects chances are they've seen somebody else's website they've seen somebody else's price test so you might not be winning any of the tests but they have in parts of their lives been affected by something else you can't control for and i know random sample selection allows for you to normalize that as much as possible and flatten it out as much as possible but some of these effects will be larger than the effect you're trying to measure in some cases and that's where to a degree we try and educate ourselves as best as possible but it comes a point where you go that's good enough for us to make a decision at the risk we've currently got and yep totally um so so i did want to i did want to touch on this uh before we ran out of time but gorgie you've written a new article very recently on confidence intervals did you want to you want to spend some time talking about it all because i thought it was it's uh it's probably an issue that affects way more people that than, than they'd like to admit yeah, I, I was actually surprised uh, to discover this issue so late in my work um, because initially um, we've run a lot of simulations while developing our tools and we check for that. And basically the, the thing is, are you making statements about absolute change or are you making statements about relative improvement or percent change? So are you talking about percent lift or are you saying um, our conversion rate went up 0 0.005, right? Nice. That's the difference. Yeah, and the other is our, our conversion rate is up 10%. And which one of, of these are we doing? And most people are doing the percenting because it makes sense, because it allows you to easily extrapolate that to, all right, all right, so if we are up 5% uh, here, then we're probably up 5% in revenue, so we'll probably be up 5% at the end of the year. And um, percentages are always good to be, uh, to, they're always nice this way. Uh, they, they are useful. Um, but the issue is most statistical tools actually do not deal with percentage change. They're not built to work with percentage change. So when you calculate the statistical significance or when you calculate a confidence interval, uh, they will output the confidence interval and the significance for absolute change. So, so let's say you're going from 1% um, to 1.05%. So that's 5% uh, improvement, but that's 0.05 improvement for the statistical tool. What this leads to is um, the tool will tell you that your results are better than they are, they are that you have higher certainty than you actually have. Um, the thing is, I, I, found, I found about this uh, while doing some simulations with larger effect sizes. So if you go to small effect sizes, one, two, three, five percent true effect size, it's not such a big issue. It's in the below 10% difference. But when you go to higher effect, true effect sizes, 10, 20, 40% um, lifts, then the issue is big because then you can get up to two times worse um, type one error guarantees than the nominal. So the tool will tell you uh, this test it has um, only one out of 20 chance that you'll see these results if there is no difference. 
all right, but the actual uh, probability is one out of 10. And that's already quite different for a lot of businesses. Yeah. Um, it can go in higher, uh, at higher true effects, but uh, the gist is you need special procedures for calculating confidence intervals, statistical significance, and consequently sample size if you want to make inferences about uh, percent change. And yeah, I was, I was amazed by the magnitude of the errors. And also this, this confirmed an observation I have. If you want to understand statistics, run simulations. Just do it, just go in there, get the most basic simulations you can do and just run it with different parameters, change statistical significance, change power, change the effect size, uh, change how many, um, how many times you run it and see how this changes the results. Make sure you understand what goes in, what goes out and what happens in between. When you do that for the most simple experiments, you'll be able to understand significance, power, you'll be able to, to better model risk, reward, and finally achieve what A-B testing is all about, which is you want to limit, limit the business risk, but you don't want it to stifle innovation, to, to be at the cost of you know, no development of the business. So yeah, I, I'm not sure that, that it made sense. It's, it's easier when you read the math and the equations and the graphs regarding the confidence intervals, but let me know if you have questions. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that was a great explanation. And I, I would, again, I would highly recommend people uh, visit Georgi's website, which is uh, Analytics Toolkit, and um, check out a lot of those blog articles. Uh, they definitely help me see a lot of things differently. Um, and I've actually run out of time. Yeah, uh, likewise. So um, it's been super good to have you on uh, this week, Georgi. Uh, Chad, as always, uh, nice to have you on. Um, it's been Convergenations, I'm Tim Stewart, and I'm just going to say that uh, obviously we've been talking through some stuff that interests us, but we're quite interested in hearing from you guys, telling us what you'd hear, like to hear more about. And we have actually included some questions in previous episodes, we're going to do a bit more of that in coming episodes. And the uh, until next time, we'll catch up with you guys, and thanks a lot. See you later. Thanks, guys. Thanks, guys. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Convergenations. Don't forget to subscribe to get notified when we release new updates. Conversionations is brought to you by Effective Experiments. Want to make experimentation a core part of your business? Request your demo and let us show you how we can help you grow your testing program.